everyone, and uh, it's lovely to be back. <laughs> this is the third time that I've uh, been invited back since, uh, since I retired, which was now seven years ago, can you believe? Um, I tell you what, I'm, I'm, I'm going to bring this forward. That's better. Because it's too low. Hang on, let me just get myself so organised. And I, I also want to thank Tim for um, preparing and, and leading this morning because I have felt uh, really the hand of God on what we are doing here today because uh, I, in fact it was over a week ago that I was preparing this message for this morning and then Tim's been preparing the service that's going to go ar around it and, and they really do fit together. I've, I've been uh, sensing the presence of God's help and leading as a uh, as we've been through the service thus far. And hopefully you'll see what I mean as we progress. I refer to the fact that I've been retired now for seven years uh, and about a month. And, uh, but when I was working here, one of the things that I did was, was to undertake a number of chaplaincies. Um, I was chaplain three times, as Michelle has been, to the mayor of Salt Ash. Um, I was chaplain to the Royal British Legion here in Salt Ash, and I was also chaplain to Plymouth Argyle for 12 years. And, uh, and I mention these things because I found them extremely helpful in two ways. One was is that, and I think any minister can suffer from this, you could become so embroiled in the life of the church that you fail to live where other people are living. Um, and to be involved as a chaplain out in the world and with, if you like, ordinary people, it, 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 it helps you to see where other people are at and, and what they are feeling and, and all of that sort of stuff. So that was very helpful in, indeed. And, uh, and the other reason for wanting to say this is that uh, I was really quite surprised especially when working at Argyle, at the openness that I found to Christianity, to the Gospel. I had been under the impression that there was a hardness and a resistance, because that's often what I'd seen within the media, or an indifference. And I found a real hunger and a real interest in what was this message. What was it that I was about as a Christian minister that I believed in so passionately that it became my whole life, my work, and everything? People wanted to know. And as I was preparing for this message, I was reading through a number of things, and I came across a, a man, some of you might know the name, Dr. Clifford Hill. And he said... He wrote this in September 2016, so about two and a half years ago. He said this, maybe the only thing holding back revival in Britain is that many people in churches have not yet woken up to the spiritual hunger of people around them. Now, I don't know whether that's been your experience as you've engaged with people. There can be a lot of scepticism perhaps even some anger and opposition to the church as an institution. 
But as individuals that have a belief, and we've been singing about it this morning, I believe, etc., and the people I have seen have been very interested to know what it is that we do believe and why we believe it. I want to try and distinguish this morning between evangelism and mission, because my title, is it up? no, it's not up there. What does it mean to be a missional community? What does it mean to be a missional community? And that begs the question, of course, well, what does the word missional mean? What is the mission? How does the mission differ from evangelism, if it does at all? What's it all about? And I've tried, as I've prepared this, to unpack these things a little bit and, and try to understand them. And clearly there is a very strong link between evangelism and mission. That evangelism is that effort that we make to go out and tell people about the Lord, to try to convince people of the importance of belief, to convince people of the, the reality of God and the love of God and the plans and promises of God and win them to the faith. I was here a couple of weeks ago and Michelle, I remember her saying quite clearly that uh, converting people is not something that we do. We can't do that. We can't actually bring about that spark of, of, of belief and, and, and the readiness to commit. That's a work of God and of the Holy Spirit. But he does use us in the process. I've been involved in all sorts of evangelism over the years. I remember Billy Graham very vaguely from the 1950s. I'm now 72, by the way. You probably worked that out from the fact I've been retired seven years. And more particularly in the 1960s, where I remember going many times up to Earl's Court in London uh, to hear Billy Graham. I remember Mission England. More locally, I remember the Walk of a Thousand Men. Do you remember making waves? Good. <laughs> I was very involved in that one. And, uh, and all these are evangelistic uh, endeavours that have been undertaken by the church. Oh, Billy Graham, bigger than just the church, but uh, thinking more locally. Efforts that have been made in order to try to bring people to a place where uh, they're able to hear and to understand and be challenged and be able to commit. And I've always found it, and I'm sure anybody that's involved in evangelism would say that it's difficult. It doesn't just happen. And there is this almost paradox, I suppose, between the hunger that is there and, and then the, the actual process of coming to faith. It's, it's really frustrating and really difficult. And that's evangelism, trying to win people. Mission includes evangelism, but it's bigger. If we are a missional community, we must be involved in wanting to share our faith, either as individuals or in an organized way. And there are all many things that are already taking place where we are attempting to do that. But mission is actually bigger than just evangelism. And perhaps it is true that mission, if we understand it properly, provides the the right context for evangelism to take place. Now, I want to quote again from Clifford Hill, 
because he was saying something and it was about back in the 19th century and on into the 20th century when there had been great what they called revivals, when there had been a move in the country and, uh, and thousands of people came to faith. And it made a real difference. This is what he said. A striking example of success in changing the nation can be seen in the social statistics of the times. Throughout the 19th century, crime rates fell dramatically. By 1870, there were only 10,000 in the jails of England and Wales. But even more remarkably, remarkable was the continuing fall over the next 30 years. By 1910, there were only 3,000 prisoners in the nation's jails. What is it now? It's about 70,000, isn't it, or something? 3,000 back in 1910. Now, he goes on to say, despite the population rising then from 25 million to 35 million, where we're getting towards twice that now, but if we had, tw had 6,000 prisoners in the jail now with a population of approaching 70,000, that would... crumbs. <laughs> the Home Secretary would be <laughs> absolutely thrilled. Um, but of course that's not the way. And we're all the time building more prisons and wondering what to do with people. And we're, we're now debating as a, as a country whether, this is the Home Secretary, whether perhaps short sentences of not, more, not less than six months should be replaced by community service and that sort of thing. And I think possibly that's a good idea for other reasons as well. But it's not addressing the heart of the problem, is it? That's only dealing with the problem. And you see, what I'm trying to say is this, that mission is about the heart of God and the love of God for the whole of the world, including our society, including our country. And our prayers this morning for re-Brexit and government, etc., is all part of being a missional community. We're not just wrapped up in ourselves. We are mindful that God has a, a love and a plan and a purpose for, for the town, for, for Cornwall, for Devon, for the country, for Europe, for the world, and, and even beyond. And that's what, really, I want to be following through here on this morning. I've written this down. If evangelism is the winning of people to the faith, mission is the wider purpose of God, the mission of God. Or, if the goal of evangelism is bringing new people into the church, the goal of mission is the transformation of the planet. Jesus came to do the will of God. He said that, exactly that. And he expressed this in terms of the kingdom of God, which is why I was so thrilled when we sang that song this morning, the new wine of the kingdom, the kingdom of God. And I love what I'm saying, it's actually all in that hymn. But, um, so, but, but I'm going to reinforce it. I've written down here, what does that phrase mean, kingdom of God? I used it last Sunday when I was at St. Budo, and I said there, and I repeat it again here, the kingdom of God is not heaven. It is about the, the will of heaven being made real on earth. And we put it in the Lord's Prayer. Again, Tim, you, you encourage us, which we don't normally do, to say together the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's absolutely clear 
in there. The mission of God is the will of God being done throughout all the world. That the reign of God, that King Jesus would be effective throughout all the world. Janet, in your prayer, you refer to the fact that we can easily lose sight of the fact that our God is sovereign. We see all the troubles in the world and we can ask ourselves, well, where is God? What's happening? And not just only the troubles that we we see on our televisions that have come from the, the news media, but the troubles that we ourselves can experience. The troubles of sickness and worry, of finance, of job security, and all these sorts of things. They all come under the umbrella, or can be placed under the umbrella, and should be, of God's concern, plan, and purpose for everything that he has made. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've written five things down here about, about what Jesus was doing. There are many more that we could say, but I'm also... What, what time did you finish, by the way? <laughs> Do you know, I'm going to boast something. Last week, I was doing a very special service. It was essentially just a dedication for a family that uh, had come into the church via the, the toddler group that, that, that Janet runs. And I, I promised at the beginning of the service that I would finish between ten past and quarter past eleven. I finished at twelve minutes past. And I got a clap. <laughs> Such a surprise. But Jesus came to start with announcing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is here. And, uh, and he went on then secondly to demonstrate that. Um, by, for example, his miracles. When he when he would go to people, lepers, uh, and, and touch them and heal them. He was demonstrating what it is that when God comes, he wants to, to do. God cares about every detail of life. And he cares when people are sick and suffering and even facing death. He wants to be there. Now, we, we need to understand the bigger things in a, in a larger context, but what Jesus was doing was demonstrating through all the individuals that he was engaged with, just what it meant for God to be concerned about us. There was nothing that was excluded. So his miracles, even for example the feeding of the 5,000, which was both a, an echo back to the past and redeeming that, as well as meeting the needs of the people of the present day. It's all about that God knows, God cares, God understands, and God is providing. The third thing is that he explained what this thing, the kingdom of God, means. He explained what it is for, 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 for the reality of God to be effective amongst us. And he did it in a variety of ways. And one of, the, one of the most beautiful passages that we have within the Bible is what we call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, where he said, for example, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And, and all sorts of illustrations and things that he laid down in that sermon, as well as within other places. He taught. So he, he claimed, he demonstrated, he taught. Fourthly, he brought forgiveness. Because forgiveness mucks up, or rather the lack of forgiveness, mucks up everything. It spoils relationships because we, we fail people 
we insult people, we let people down, we're unkind to people. And, and in the process, we also offend God. And so very early on in his ministry, this is the way certainly that the, the gospel writers have recorded it. He came and he brought forgiveness. He set people free so that their relationships could be restored at a, at a community level or a family level or a friendship level as well as with God himself, which is very, very important. And then the fifth thing I wanted to say, out of many, many, and this was also last week's subject, that Jesus laid down his life sacrificially. He didn't just talk, he didn't just demonstrate, he gave everything that he had to the cause of God. <coughs> when he went to the cross, and then God raised him. Can I just make a little comment here? Because I sometimes get a little bit niggled by claims that Jesus somehow raised himself from the dead. Because it misunderstands what it's about. Jesus came as the servant of God. He just gave himself away. He, he allowed himself to be put to death and he was totally at the mercy of God. And it was God the Father that raised him on Easter morning, satisfied and accepting all that he had done through all his life. And that great act of sacrifice provided the way for all people to be forgiven. I'm going to switch subjects now. I'm going to talk about mountains. I love mountains. Last year, I saw a number of mountains in America because I went on a trip with my son out to from Las Vegas through to California, and uh, we went through Death Valley, we came past Mount Whitney, which is the highest mountain apart from Alaska in the United States. We also went through Yosemite and saw a half dome, and uh, what's the other thing that's there? Um, Al Capitan, thank you very much. <laughs> and, uh, and I just love being in the presence of mountains. I love Scotland, I love North Wales. There are mountains in Europe. One of my ambitions is to see the Matterhorn. I am not going to die until I've seen that. I promise. Well, God willing. I remember as uh, quite a youngster, one of the neighbours from where I lived had climbed the Matterhorn. And I just thought this man was incredible. He climbed this in a day, back up and down. The reason why I talk about mountains is that in the Bible, there are some mountain peaks. There are also some valleys. There are also some desert areas. Thinking of going out to Death Valley, it was real barren stuff and very, very hot. But it's the mountain tops that I'm thinking of here this morning. Because in many parts of the Bible, there are these special places where wonderful promises are made. And I've, and I've got some here. I've got seven. I'm going to read them. That's why I was asking about the time, because I'll, I'll go quickly. The first is about restoration. Hang on to these words. This is the heart of God to bring restoration. Heaven, this is following on after the death and resurrection of Jesus and his ascension. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy pro prophets. God plans to restore everything. 
This one is incredibly important to me. Liberation, freedom. Hear this. Paul writes in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation. I just suddenly realised I've left a book at home I wanted to quote from. Anyway. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That begs all sorts of questions. For the creation itself was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it. In other words, it's God that has brought about a frustration, but in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That is one of the most important statements in the whole of the Bible because it deals with everything that God has made. It echoes back, if you like, to Genesis chapter 1 where God brought all things into being but they're not yet what he plans and intends. It's going to be set free that death will be no more, that futility will be finished, that the, uh, uh, frustrations and sufferings will be ended. Unification. Ephesians 1, with all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us, said Paul, the mystery of his will according to his good purpose, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfilment. Now there's an exciting concept. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. When we... When we see through the news, everywhere, disunity. Everything breaking up. God's purpose is to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth. I wish I had all day with you. For, fourthly, reconciliation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. That's from Colossians chapter 1. Five, a transformation I'd call this. Revelation. John, who wrote it, said, I heard a loud voice from the throne of God saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Everything, everything will be transformed. This is the God that we believe in. This is the God that we come to worship. This is the God whom Jesus served in order that these things would be released. Universality. <laughs> I'll try it again. Universality. This is from 1 Timothy chapter 2. Paul writes, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving, thanksgiving, Tim, it's in there, be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceably and quiet lives in all good godliness and holiness. This is God and pleases God our Saviour who wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We mustn't... We mustn't allow the limitation of frustration and, of, and the unbelief we see to 
weaken our confidence in God, who says, I want, I, I want all people. I'm not a God of favourites. I'm a God certainly that calls you because you then become the means of, of extending it. And then the last one I put in here. Mercy for all. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience. Again, that little phrase. God has caged us up. That's the, the idea that's behind it. Locked us up in a world of disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. And Paul then goes on to say, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. God is brilliant. <laughs> and the promises that he made are just wonderful. But look, I, I come again. These promises, that, these things that I've lifted out of the New Testament, if you if they're not seen in the context of, of the darkness and the unbelief and the wickedness and all the rest of it, they, they become unreal. We've got to hold this attention. And if you look at the context of all of these, it's, it's all about the unbelief and, and, and all that flows from unbelief and wickedness. And yet God is wanting to say through it, look, don't, don't look at the problems, look at me. I've got a plan, I've got a purpose, I've got a heart. And so the psalm, as I draw to a close, that Janet read to us, Psalm 96, it falls into three parts. The first part is this, sing to the Lord a new song. And I've said this recently, it doesn't mean just keep writing new songs, it's not about that. It's about the freshness and the vitality. Keep your faith alive, keep exci being excited. Keep wanting to sing the praises of God. Keep it new every morning. It then begins to declare that this is something not just for God's people, this is something for all the earth. Let all the families of the, of, of the nations all sing the praises of God. From the point of view of the writer of the psalm, he's, he, he's declaring this throwing it out to the world, come on in, if you like an, an our song, taste the new wine. And then the third part deals with judgment. And it's a very rare psalm because most frequently when the subject of judgment is touched upon in the Bible, it is something that's fearsome, something that's difficult and painful, scary. And yet this psalm writer says, bring it on that God will judge with equity, with fairness. He will, he will judge with kindness. He will judge with purpose. And as I understand it, that the judgment of God is about sifting out all that's wrong, shaking us up out of our lethargy and our unbelief and all the rest of it, and bringing us to a place where we see it and respond. Because the purpose of judgment is not, to, is not to crush, but to bring blessing. I'm trying to think back to the service that's gone on and some of the prayers 
No, I know I was thinking this as we were praying. But what we, and certainly the Western world, because what Britain is going through at the moment is not unique. The divisions, the uncertainty, the loss of confidence, the inequality, the rich and the poor, and, and the problems are getting worse. It's true across Europe, and it's particularly true in America. The Western world is being shaken. And I dare to suggest this is because God loves us as part of the whole of the world and has seen how we become so sort of comfortable in all the stuff that we possess. But that's not what life is about. Not that stuff is wrong. But when it becomes the things that we live for, it becomes our God. When we become selfish and greedy in the things that we can have and are not mindful of the, of the wider world and the, the heart of God and the love of God for all, he shakes us up. He won't allow us just simply to go on forever in this way. And I dare to suggest that Donald Trump and our Brexit problems, whichever side of the thing you sit, and all the migration problems throughout Europe are part of God's shaking because he loves us. But I want to say this, as I, and I really am going to finish on this note. That if we think about the judgment of God, it comes in all kinds of ways, and ultimately there will be a final, last judgment. But the supreme judgment of God took place at Calvary. When the Son of God, as a human being, more than a human being, of course, but God having clothed himself in humanity, bore the guilt and the shame and the consequences of rebellion against God and strung up on a cross, probably naked, was left there to die. He took it all in order that the love of God could spread throughout all the earth. And you and I and all that will call on the name of the Lord can be forgiven and start that process of being restored and blessed. And as we are in a missional community, our hope is in the goodness and greatness of God so that in all we do, wherever we go, every act of kindness, every word that is spoken, that is encouraging and upbuilding for somebody else, is all part of the mission of God, along with the evangelistic efforts that uh, we undertake. Praise God. Amen.